Hello, everybody. I'm back with another episode of the Whole Brother Mission podcast. I know it's it's been a good minute since I've had an episode, but I decided to kind of take a break for a while. Um, I'm doing a lot better now, but I think all of us have kind of been under some additional stress. You know, we already have the pandemic and you already have uh, some of the political stress <laughs> that comes. Uh, but then when you have... Um, you know, a lot of the racial tensions that are that are going on and video after video and video and so on and so forth. And as, as, as most recently, uh, Chadwick Boseman's passing, um, I think there's a lot of things going on where I found myself telling people, you know, it's OK uh, to chill out and not continue to produce at the level you were. It might be beneficial to fall back for a bit. And I find myself saying that, but I, I was still trying to get these get these episodes out and, and produce in other ways. So I had to take my own advice and, and fall back for a minute. I hope I, I, I don't upset you or let you down, but um, I thought it'd be good to, to fall back for a bit. And throughout that time, I was able to have quite a few conversations with people about a variety of things. But one included uh, my book release, Whole Brother, Debunking the Myths that Break the Black Family. And to all that have... Uh, purchased it and read it whether it be kindle or paperback or a signed copy uh i appreciate that and i appreciate the support and i appreciate the well wishes and giving kind words and sharing it with other people um it's gotten into places that i didn't expect um and quite a few people are, are getting it for themselves but then after they read it they decide to get it for someone else so i appreciate that one of those uh, messages and stories i got along the way was from a friend uh named aleem johnson who's my guest today and i thought it'd be good uh, he sent me a few texts about as he was reading through, but I thought it'd be good for us to talk about this uh, in a in a in an open space um, to get more interest around it, but to hear how it's uh, hitting other people. Because as a, as an author, a lot of times you you start writing and you're thinking about what you want to articulate, but if anybody that has Twitter or Facebook or any type of social media, you recognize what you wrote and what you intended may not always translate the, the, that way when someone else reads it. So I had I had this anxiety of, well, what if they think I meant this when I didn't mean this? And I, I can't correct it. I can't edit it because this is them along with the book. So we haven't rehearsed. Uh, he sent me a few texts about his thoughts, but I thought it'd be good for us to get a raw, natural discussion about uh, his experience. But um, before we jump into that, I do want you to get a little bit more uh, info about who he is and his since the book centers family about his family dynamic. I am a single man. No children, but he has a different perspective, a different experience, and I'll let him share that. Aleem, how are you? Hey, Malik. Thanks for having me. I'm um, doing good. Uh, I thank you so, for joining me. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, once, again, once again, thank you for, for joining me today, and I'll let you take it from there so they know a little bit more about you. Oh, okay. Um, as you said, my name is Aleem Johnson. Um, I'm 34 years old. I live in the DMV. I live in Maryland. Um, I was born in D.C. Um, my father passed when I was 12 years old. Um, my mother never remarried. Um, I had children uh, very young. I started out the first time my wife was pregnant was when I was in 12th grade in high school. And uh, we essentially we lost the baby. We had a second child her senior year of high school. Um, and then we had a third child in 2008. We currently have one child as we um, lost one of our children and our oldest child in a car accident, unfortunately, in 2013. But just saying all of this to say this is kind of, you know, what defines my uh, 
path into fatherhood and mm-hmm. some of the things that made me really want to read the book and see, you know, what it could point out in my life. So right now, uh, my daughter is about to be 12 this week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, congratulations. But, um, and happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So I, I wanted to uh, lead with that because I think everybody kind of hears things in many cases based on their experience or they view life through their lens. And I, I wrote this intentionally about family and fatherhood as a single man and not a father because I thought that that perspective is not really presented because most times we assume that the person um, who is living this thing is the person who can best speak to it. But we never consider the fact that fatherhood is an interesting dynamic because it includes the, the children too. So a father may have his perspective on how he was a father, but then there's the, the, the children's side of it. So I spoke I spoke about it as an, as an adult son, not as a father. And I was worried about fathers who do who might know that because a, a lot of the readers don't know me personally so they don't know what my dynamic is but you are the one that one of the ones who do so one concern was i wonder if these fathers are gonna be like man he don't know what he's talking about he young he ain't got no kids who, who, who can he, how how can he speak to this he doesn't understand how hard it is uh as a father uh could you share what were your initial thoughts and you don't have to be nice because i'm i'm here you know be completely uh, uh honest <laughs> no 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 um I think that you actually articulated that well. And I want to say that this book, that was one of the things that was um, that, of course, stuck out to me. And like you said, because I know you, I already know you're very articulate and everything. But you put some words to things that um, maybe I didn't know how to articulate myself. So I really didn't look at it from the standpoint of a father. I looked at it from the standpoint of a son. You know, I was I was still someone's son. And so what it caused me to do was for the first time in my life, really analyze my childhood as from an adult perspective. You know, a lot of times we look at memories and if you were 10 when something happened, you have that emotion from when you were 10. You kind of just go off of that and we can just kind of live life. But I said, now that I've lived through life, I'm reading this book. It made me go back and look at different situations, not from my own childhood, but of course, from uh, people around me, my siblings, friends stuff like that to say, wow, you know, these things in the moment, they didn't seem maybe as either catastrophic or life changing or they didn't really stand out. It just felt like I was living life. But now as an adult, and that's the only part that comes in as a father where you take note of this stuff where you're like, I don't want my child to experience some of these things. Yeah. And so I want to say, you know, starting out, that's why I say, you know, when I sent you the text message early on, like I was like, four pages into the book and I had to stop and like, I was having a conversation with one of my sisters, like going back to childhood and saying, you know, we're the same age. She's my stepsister. We're the same. So we're the same age and looking at her coming into, um, you know, uh, being added to a family starting out as a single child and how we both saw from the outside looking in as kids compared to how we are as adults and all of the things that, we have really worked hard to protect our children from. We just had a lot of things that we experienced that I feel maybe I normalized just so that I could survive. Hmm. Hmm. So what would you say are, are some of those things? Um, because I, I think I, I gel with exactly what you're saying, but when you say things mm-hmm. that you normalized, uh, what exactly yeah. are you referring to? And then you said survival and 
And that yeah. stands out to me too because, you know, and it's funny because I know <laughs> your name is a uh, meme Aleem on Instagram, but mm-hmm. I I came across a meme <laughs> that that really stuck with me, and um, it said there is a it's important to know the difference between people that were raised on love and people that were raised on survival. And I was like, wow, that's really that's really key, because I think sometimes, uh, depending on how you came up family wise, that'll affect how you engage with people in general. Relationally, there are Mm -hmm. people that came from these great loving families who go out and just want to share that love. And they're just kind of green about what goes on in certain relationships and how people use people and how some people are toxic. Um, So people that come from good dynamics end up wanting to share that. But then people who who just had to get by on survival mm-hmm. may approach people differently and have, have certain guards up. So just kind of unpack for us what you mean by, or well, what were the things you had to normalize and why was survival even the perspective to begin with? Okay. So I had kind of made a post um, maybe the other day and I've been just kind of like working through some of this stuff with my therapist. You know, I know that that's something that the whole brother mission is very passionate about. You know, my wife and I started, counseling together before we got married um and then eventually once we had the accident it pretty much switched to like grief counseling but i've been in therapy consistently for 11 years right so even with all of that like unpacking my childhood and everything there was a lot of stuff that happened up until the point let's say before i moved to the suburbs when i was 12 going on 13 so for one um losing my father at a young age you know at 12 my father um, succumbed to a heart attack. He was only 43. And at the time, and even still to this day, a lot of the family members will refer to, will say, you know, I handled it so well. There was just a lot of things. And because I was just very matter of fact, um, took care of things, uh, whatever I had to do, you know, I can remember I only cried twice the the time that I found out and then at the funeral, you know, but looking back now, I didn't have the language to express how I felt. You know, there was no, there was no help. There was no support given, you know, it kind of, you you don't want to make it seem like that, but you know, I had the cliche of everyone said, you know, let me know if you need anything now, outside. You know, we all have a family circle or a circle of friends or whatever people that we do stuff with. But you know, when something like that happens, there are plenty of people who say, you know, you know, let me know. I'll be there for you, whatever. And I'm gonna tell you, nobody, came through with anything. I mean, like I went back, like my father passed. I think I was at school the next day. Like I never, a guidance counselor never talked to me. There was a lot of things, but up until that point, um, the reason I say survival is because let's say at, at 12, I was living in Kentland by that point in my life to where we about, where we had about moved out. I had witnessed like four or five shootings. And I'm starting to realize, you know, I had been around a lot of people that uh, or not a lot, but I had been around different uh, people with that would have weapons, of course, illegally. I think the first time I saw a gun, I was probably like maybe eight or nine. And it was another it was a next door neighbor's cousin. I think we were in D.C. and I think he had a gun. We're talking about, you know, this young. And being exposed to stuff like this, my father still lived in um, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, we got along on the block and stuff. But I could I, you know, so I knew the guys I could still name the people that I remember 
having guns out there and stuff. And then, you know, in Kentland, I, I think our first year I was almost shot. I saw um, someone shot there. We had the, you know, the cliche, like somebody was shooting at the basketball court. I found a gun outside. So there was a lot of things that I have to look back now and say, this was not like, this is not the regular black experience. This is not something that should be normalized or anything. You know, this is really something traumatic. There was a lot of stuff that happened up until that point. But for me, I don't know if it was like, because I never got hurt, it was almost like a, a thrill in some instances, at least when there weren't people shooting, just being in the hood for some reason was very appealing. But like I said, I think it was more so just so that I could survive because I distinctly, I acutely remember, I was like, this is a dangerous situation where we live. And we moved there when I was in at the end of fifth grade and fifth grade. I knew that I was living in a dangerous area and we were there for three years. So all of this stuff leading up to it, you know, then even though I knew it was dangerous, there was a lot of things. I was still just out and about. It was just, you know, what it was. But when I look back on it, I say, you know, there's a lot of situations I shouldn't have been in. There's some situations I should have told adults about, um, you know. So when that's why I say when I look back as an adult, it just it was more of a lot of survival mode. Because when you're seeing all of this stuff, when you know that at any given moment you could probably be killed, you know, it's, you can't operate every day just saying that. So you compartmentalize things. Yeah, I definitely think many of us compartmentalize to our detriment and don't even realize when we're doing it. Um, I'm glad you said something that reminded me of my experience. I remember I was I had just uh, this was around shortly after I had had left Oklahoma and went to 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 Los Angeles, and I was sitting in the car on a on a busy street. It was um, I remember the uh, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, I think. Like, I, I remember all the details mm -hmm. of that day. It was uh, bright, um, uh, and I, I was sitting in my parked car, and I came to the realization that some of the experiences that I had with, with my dad that were traumatic happened when I was so young that I, ha I came to that same conclusion that you had where I couldn't even put words to what was happening. My, my childhood mind couldn't even process this experience. I remember one of them being that I was at my um I was at my grandmother's house and my, my dad was flipping out about not being able to see me more and then he uh was just running through my grandmother's house screaming and then he kinda locked me in a room with him alone to keep my mom and my aunt and my grandmother out. And then he was gesturing like he was gonna hit my mom, but he never actually did it and he was just acting erratic. And I don't even remember how young I was. I was just super young. Not a, definitely not even a teenager at this point. And in addition to that, as I wrote about in the book, you know, he wasn't around much because of his drug issue. And I remember mm -hmm. it wasn't until 25 that it clicked or 26 that um, your mind didn't know what to do with this as it was happening. Like, you can think through it now and say that was a traumatic experience. He was exhibiting erratic behavior. But all you know is mm -hmm. your parents are having a, a conflict right now and you can't do anything about it. Um, right. so I think many of us have experiences that we can't even process when they're happening in our childhood. And to me, um, I don't want to lean too far into the psychological aspect uh, prematurely, but I think a lot of these experiences lie dormant for a while. 
and you don't process it. It just yeah. sits there. It's affecting you, but it's just kind of sitting there. And it's not until your adult life that you can begin to unpack. Okay, what was happening there, and how did it affect me? Um, so I, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned that because I think so many of us are scared to go back and look at all right, what went down back then, and how was it affecting me now? And more often than not, I think it is. So it's worth it's worth the uh, search to go back and see because those things in the past don't just stay in the past. They have a way of showing up in the present. Oh, absolutely. I think that you worded that perfectly. And I think that you will also also agree, even though we couldn't process it, then we allowed it to affect us in a way as we grew up, we created certain safety boundaries or we were we were a little more street smart than the, than our average friend because we had been exposed to these things so young, mm-hmm. you know, so it grew it grew us up much faster. You know, that was something that I really had to look at because, you know, I, I was talking to a friend who was recently having a child and I remember them asking me, you know, was I ever like uh, nervous or scared about being a father? I was like, you know, I, there was never any kind of I was never scared to be a father. I always knew that if I had a, a child, I didn't care that I was even when I was 17, that I would be able to take care of this child and raise this child because I've seen plenty of bad examples and you know, I was like, what other choice do I have? I'm like, it's not it can't be that hard to feed and change and eventually teach to read and stuff. You know, we got a good background, but I was never scared of being enough as a father. But looking at those situations, you know, it, I was always like, OK, I got to pay attention. I got to do all of these things. I remember it was in a uh, a Tyler Perry movie. I can't remember which one, but he was telling the young lady he was, she was plane passing. It's all good. <laughs> okay. You know, still by Andrews Air Force Base, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, I didn't even you know, it's I normal. think we even picked it up, actually. Oh, wow. No, I couldn't hear. I was. I felt like my voice started going up because I couldn't even hear. Oh, okay. No, you're good. Yeah, that's how loud it was. Okay, yeah. So, I'm sorry. So, the Tyler Perry movie um, where he ends up taking care of the young lady that was like, you know, she had the child in the car with her. Right. And he said, you know, it was kind of irresponsible to try to put that responsibility on her. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of things that that happened that we just that just had to take care of. There was no other way of putting it. And just like how you say, OK, even with your father, but there was family experiences. You know, um, when my father passed, he had he had a bad relationship with his father as well. When my grandfather died, we hadn't we found out like six months later. You know, it was he had been buried, of course, and everything, but he hadn't they hadn't been speaking. I could I can never tell you to this day why they had a splintered relationship. Um, I'm assuming it was in some kind of way that he treated his mother because my grandparents were divorced. But um, when my father passed, I really didn't know much of my extended family. He had six other brothers and sisters. I was only familiar with one because we grew up. I grew up with my cousins. We lived together when we were first born. So. But the other one, the other aunts and uncles that I had, I had never met. And so when my father died, some people showed up and basically ransacked the house, you know. So imagine at 12 years old, you lose your father and then strangers come in, take stuff, including your own stuff, you know, because when it's like a, you know, it's like a cash grab. They just they just took anything. I distinctly remember here I am. I'm 34. So we're talking about 22 years later. I distinctly remember they took some of my Disney tapes 
I was like, and I, I told my mother, like, and she still remembers this. I was like, dang, I didn't die. Why did they take my stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, but that was the kind of, th- like, it was just, so that shaped my future in a lot of ways. Like, that helped me to honestly cut toxic people off with no problem. I'm like, there's no way anyone should be like this. You know, and I, I knew that. I was like, there's, I've, I've experienced a lot of wrong things in my life, but this is just, this is just something that's completely unacceptable that I refuse to even negotiate about or try to play like, okay, either these are elders or anything like this. Even then I was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't deal with them. They're still family members that to this day, I don't deal with because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have this dynamic of, um, understanding how childhood trauma can reappear. Um, and the importance of going back and, and dealing with it. Um, each of the, just for those that don't, that don't know, as far as how the book is broken down, I assess uh, four different types of fathers in the beginning. And then from there, each of the subsequent chapters is a myth that we believe about manhood. Between the four fathers and the myths, was there anything that uh, stood out to you personally? Okay, this is where I'm going to need a little um, leading on the actual um, yeah, yeah, yeah. the titles that you gave each father. So if you could give me uh, just a quick reminder. So, uh, and it's funny you say that. I just drew a blank, too. I'm like, I wrote it. I just forgot. But no, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the absent father, the present but distant father, the toxic father, and the single mother as a father. And just to explain so, those. Oh, oh, you got it. Are you good? Okay. No, no, I got it. No, I could, I completely, you know, look, you know, we, we shared the same pastor. Hearing those words, we know what all of it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all of that. So I will say, honestly, my father was, was, uh, was the toxic father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a great relationship. This is once again, something that I couldn't see until I was grown. You know, uh, my parents divorced when I was five. So my mother was a single mother, you know, and we went on the whole, you know, we do like every other weekend, we would trade off, they would trade off at McDonald's or churches or wherever, you know, for a while. But regardless of what happened, my, my father, I could tell you, regardless, I was the, you know, my mom said he always called me like the little king. My father was very, very much, uh, he very much loved me, taught me things, tried to do things, but toxic in the way of certain um aspects of his life the certain decisions that he would make but when it came when it came to me specifically he was a great father you know um hence why i have these impressions made on me you would think losing a father at 12 i would have lost a lot of these skills but by 12 he had taught me how to cook wash clothes he had taught me how to shave it taught me how to deal with um you know deal with a lot of things he even taught me how to think you know my my parents came from two different ends of the spectrum. You know, my mom's a teacher. She has a master's degree. My father never graduated from high school, but they were both very much. So it was never, I'm going to give you the answer. You're going to have to think, you know, regardless of what it is. And I remember him not being ashamed. I could to still think at, so let's say he was maybe around like 40 years old and he had learned a new word and he wasn't, it was, he had heard it at work. And at the time it was rapport, you know, and he had like came home, looked at he was unashamed to look it up in the dictionary because it was something that he didn't know. He had no he had no reason to play as if he knew everything. He was okay with looking things up. And you know, he conversed a lot with different people. But the uh as far as the toxicity came from, 
you know, his relationships with women. You know, that's really where um, the issue came in. So, but once again, this is seeing something that you only see as an adult. You know, from a very young age, I was taught to lie, to mind my business. I can, you know, it, it wasn't even like a talk. It was never, there was never a time where my father was one of those, like, you know, don't tell your mother this or, or don't tell because he had, you know, if he had different girlfriends or whatever, it was never that. And he exposed me to just about every woman that he had been involved with, you know? So it was, it was never very much of, okay, maybe he was dealing with someone and, you know, maybe I'll see her later. No, it was like, whoever he was dealing with, I would see them. And subsequently I have a younger brother, you know, that came from one of these relationships. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was the, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm glad you you touched on that because I think that's a hot button issue that hopefully we can kind of delve into today. Um, so that is many guys' story, right? In terms of if they had a toxic father, more often than not, outside of uh, some other more prominent things, it's the it's the women thing, unfortunately. Like that is such a, a prevalent thing, right? And it's yeah. interesting because I heard a me- media personality recently talking about uh, Meg the Stallion get getting shot, and he was saying, you know, I don't appreciate a lot of you hip hop artists popping up saying protect black women because she got shot, but where was the protect black women when you were were cheating or when it comes to being verbally abusive or emotionally abusive or physically abusive or, you know. What about those aspects that we don't protect black women and we overlook? And um, it's it's interesting as well because my dad didn't necessarily instill that in me. I got that from cousins and, and uncles. And I remember being in middle school, my first real girlfriend, and she was cool. I didn't have any problems with her. And... I wasn't necessarily interested in anyone else, but you can I guess you can call it cheating in middle school, but I cheated on her just because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. It just I didn't even really I wasn't really interested in this other uh in this other person, but I just did it because it had been ingrained in me. Oh yeah, you're supposed to get as many as you can. And luckily I got out of that mindset really quickly because I realized this was stupid because mm-hmm. I guess I had enough emotional intelligence then because I had a family that talked where it was like, now mm-hmm. you hurt her feelings for no reason. Like she was, she was cool and you just right. did this because of peer pressure. And it's interesting even more. So I keep saying interesting because I, I don't want to go too far, but mm-hmm. I did that because I was more interested. And I wonder if, if this is playing out with dads who show their sons, who they're cheating on their mom with. But I wonder if it's still this dynamic of actually being more interested in impressing men than actually treating the women you're dealing with well. Because I realized as a as a middle schooler, I, want, I, I only cheated not because I had an issue with her. I wanted to impress my friends, my male friends, so that they knew, oh, see, I got two. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's, it's this dynamic of not actually... Uh, liking the people well you know what i don't want to get too far ahead i Mm -hmm. think that we end up having toxicity instilled in us and it ends up that's one of the many ways that it does break the black family what are your thoughts on that okay so i'm very glad that you brought up this topic um 
because I have a lot to say about this. You know, my right. wife and I, <laughs> we've been together since, I, <laughs> you know, we've been together since high school, you know, for the most, for the most part, we've been together since uh, we met. I can still tell you, we met on December 10th, 2001. Our relationship started a week later on December 17th. And, you know, we're coming up on 19 years. We've been married 10 years coming up on 11 before then. So I met her when I was in 11th grade. Right. Um, but what, with what you're talking about, it's funny because it's only this standard of impressing men. And that was just something that I never had. You know, it was it was never ingrained in me because I had I had friends. I had heroes. I mean, even to this day, I know it may seem like it's not on subject, but it but it really it relates so well. Like I have no cut cards or anything for these celebrities because the actual heroes in my life, the real black men that I know have not let me down when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, how to speak to things, what's happening within our community. They have never let me down. They have led the way. So I still had a father. I had cousins. So there was there was no person or friend that I was necessarily trying to impress. And honestly, I couldn't understand it because I remember when I first got with my wife and we first started dating, you know, I had um, I had a very good friend at the time. And I remember him distinctly saying, you know, well, what if the fellows want to hang out and all of this stuff? And now I'm not promoting this, but I'm just telling you where my mindset started with. But I told him straight out, I'm not having sex with you. So I don't, you know, I have no reason to um, have <laughs> right. any type of loyalty to you <laughs> over her. Like that was just that was just yeah. the like yeah. for real. That was that was where I started. It, it had and even though it was immature, honestly, because it should have been for other reasons. Right. But I learned along the way, you know, in coming into my marriage that I was able to build that out because it's so funny. You know, I was like at my brother in law's house and the guys wanted to go somewhere or we needed to go to somebody's house real quick or something. And they was like, oh, you're going to ask your wife their joke. I was like, yeah, I'm going to like there's nothing wrong with having communication with your wife. So like all of these things, even during the time of even when men may be playing. But the funny thing was they all respected it. There's like, oh, yeah, nah, I get it. I get it. But. You know, some guys, they hear that and it may push them, it may push them away or even cause them to lie. Like, no, I got this. But I never had that. Um, I guess because I've never had those. Uh, I've never had too many male friends where I needed to impress like that. You know, I'm like, all right, if we're going to be friends that you'll be around my my then girlfriend or my wife, whatever. We'll work it out. I don't need to spend this, uh, you know, extra time with you just just for no reason. That just was never my thing. And. I'm seeing it even as an adult. I really don't understand. And that's really where the protect black women has come in. Like what, what you were talking about, it should have been said before Meg was ever shot, because when it comes to the cheating and the degrading of black women, it is very prevalent for whatever reason. And it's mostly a, a social thing. It makes absolutely no sense. Like these men who want to be out, some want to be alpha males, very machismo or whatever, I'm like, we're not hunter gatherers. There is nothing that you gain from this type of behavior, you know, within society. There's nothing like, OK, someone says, oh, man, I like a, you know, a person. This is not saying a person can't like someone's attitude, but I'm just saying. What good does an alpha male do for someone? I don't need to be an alpha male to uh, provide for my family, to, you know, have a good relationship with my wife or with friends. Like, I have no need to be domineering. I have no need to show off that certain things like I don't care or anything. It's no benefit. 
it seems to be more so like a primitive action within as if we are in like a wolf pack or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's only seems to be to impress other men. But for the most part, I'm like, okay, you're not a rapper. You're not a celebrity. You have no following like this absolutely makes no sense. You're treating a woman bad for no reason, like absolutely no reason. But a lot of that also comes from, you know, it could be past hurts. I mean, I've, I've heard the cliche. Yes. Of, you know, of a grown man in his forties that talked about when he got hurt by his first girlfriend and he was still, you know, going off about it 20 years later. That was his reason for how he treats women. Mm -hmm. And most men just don't have the type of open conversations we're having right now. They don't read the book. So it just, they just allow it to go on like that. And then they have sons and they teach them the same thing. So I honestly, one of the things that I had to um, really come to terms with just within the past, like two weeks, even with that, even especially after reading your book, had my father lived, you know, had he still been alive today, I think that um, there would be he would have disappointed me much more as an adult. You know, as a kid, there's a lot of things that you just can't process. You don't understand. You don't know. And you're also, you know, sometimes protected from. But I think as I would have gotten into like relationships and gotten older and stuff, I think there were some things that probably would have tainted my memory of him. And it's just a sad. It's just a reality. It's not even sad. It's just a reality to know that this is the type of person that he was. So once I had once I would have reached an age of, let's say, reproducing or having a woman or something like that. I mean, at 11, 12 years old, my father was like pushing me to try to talk to women and try to talk to I'm saying women, girls in public, mm-hmm. you know, like that was I'm like, OK, I I, I was confused, you know, with the actions at the time. I'm like, I like girls, but I'm like, I don't understand why he's pushing this. Yeah. It, it, and it's, <laughs> so it's so many things spinning that I didn't even and write about. So I'm about to throw a couple of things your way, but don't don't feel overwhelmed. But okay. I, um, so one, I think of, uh, and I reference him quite a bit in the book, is, is Charlemagne, uh, the radio personality from The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. And he always tells a story about how um, his dad, uh, well, in his adult life, now that he's going through therapy, he realized that he had some offenses toward his dad for cheating on his mom and breaking up their family. And he always tells a story about how when he was young, he spoke to his dad. And I guess he had found out that his dad was cheating. And his dad said, huh, you only have one girlfriend? You'll understand me one day. And pretty much kind of made excuses for the, the multiple multiple women thing. So that there's that. And then uh, I can't help but think of just the life cycle that I see for, for a lot of young black men out here that become old black men and uh i reference this a bit in the boys will be boys chapter but it's this idea that um you know you're young uh part of being a man is just kind of being horny all the time so you're free to just be out here reckless that's just part of it and then eventually we expect you to stop it and settle down and get married and if you don't you're immature but it's kind of like the same mm-hmm. culture that encourages it in youth expects him to just expects us to just be able to snap out of it and then be a man and take care of your family when it was encouraged at one point in time from from men and women. You know, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have women like this in my friend group, but I have heard quite a few women say they want men that have been with 
multiple other women. I don't want someone who isn't wanted. I want someone who many other women want too. I, I've heard women say that. And I think it might encourage this kind of, this mentality of guys being hoes too. I mean, I'm a firm believer in, you know, a hoe is a hoe. You know, so it's not just, yeah. you know, it's a label for women. There are male hoes, too, that are just kind of reckless. And, and you know, so I I wanted to bring that up to say, what are your thoughts on this ideology? Because I, I will say that I think one thing that may not have been said out loud that many of us accept as men and some women accept, too. The way some women will say it is, well, you know, all men cheat. You just got to find one who's worth working through it for. That's what a lot of women say. Now, men don't typically address it, but I, I know that the underlying mindset for many of us is that our sex drive really can't be controlled. And in fact, your your life is an opportunity for you to build up as many pleasures as possible. So the idea of saying no to sex or not pursuing a woman that you want is is absurd. So I think many of us kind of expect a pass for cheating, but then won't extend that same pass to women if they cheat, because the the assumption is that we're just these alpha male beasts that can't control our sexual desire. So you should understand, but you women should have mm-hmm. more self control than that. Right, right. So it's funny. So when we look at something like this, and you know, I think about it often. Um, so I told you, you know, I had this perspective of my father and everything, but losing my father at a young age, it required me to seek out um, male figures, right? And to learn from, because now I don't have a, tr- I don't have, there's nothing that replaces the father that re- that's going to replace your father, at least in the sense that because we had a good relationship and things, there would never be another person to step in. But I knew very young, I was like, okay, I still have to survive the rest of life you know with no guidance so but there are other men out here so i'm going to have to be smart about it and so i took the perspective of i'm going to observe as much as i can and like you know when my wife and i started our premarital counseling the one of the first things that our therapist asked us about was do we have any marriages in our life that we could look at because both of our porn both of our parents were divorced. So she said, well, is there, is there any marriages that you can point at and say that that's a good example? That's something that you want to strive after. And we both did. Now I had, you know, I met a lot of uh, men in my life who had, who were on both sides of the spectrum, you know, how they decided to treat their women, whether or not cheating was uh, something we know that's not the only toxic trait, but that's one of the things that we're talking about. And more often than not, it's just seen it's just seen as a try to get what you can as much as possible. That's pretty much it. It didn't really there wasn't really much talk ever about building re- how to build a relationship with a woman. So, you know, for the most part, mostly my love for my wife is what caused me to go out and to want to learn how to better this relationship you know somebody had to do it we were kids coming up and you know it's like all right if i wanted to last something is going i'm going to have to get some kind of skills here so i had like uncles and aunts that were married so did she and so that's kind of where we started you know with our perspective of how do how do i want to handle a relationship now of course i saw all the stuff in high school but see like 
it's funny how you said your first girlfriend was in middle school. Like I didn't even have a girlfriend until high school. Right. Even though that's not that's not necessarily late. But I was a very shy child. So regardless of what happened with men in actuality, I thought it didn't apply to me. You know, I was like, you know, I don't have any game. I don't know. Like they'll like my wife could tell you, you know. Like she had to ask me for my phone number. Like I was very shy. I really did not. I really did not have any. I I didn't have any self confidence. Um, when I look back on it now, I was never really encouraged by my parents like that. I was never really told if whether I was handsome or much of much about I love you when I was a child. So going out there, I was like, you know, I was terrified. I mean, of it wasn't just of people. It wasn't just women. I was terrified of people. So I was like, you know, I don't even qualify to do stuff like that. So and so for me, it could have been a, a default reaction to cause me to want to learn about stuff like that. But also because I was so shy. Right. I garnered a lot of female friends because I wasn't just going out trying to have sex with them. Plus, I had friends, you know, that we went to elementary school together. So if you have friends from so young, you have a different level of a relationship. And I just always talk, which I found out is very uncommon between men, right? So when you don't talk about stuff, you talk about it a lot. And I want to say that was something that really, really hit me was those levels of communication. I was like, I don't have, I didn't really have any men below level five. Mm -hmm. Like it was surface cliche, you know, and maybe some facts like if that. So when I saw that, but, you know, we talk about it all the time. Women are more vocal. You know, they will express themselves. So to me, it was like I have an I have a chance to learn about people. I have a chance to learn about women. Here's some things that maybe will work, maybe won't work or whatever. So when I looked at that stuff, I said, OK, what do I gain from it? That's always been my thing. What like I had to tell myself, what exactly do I gain from mistreat from openly mistreating this woman? Right. Let's just say let's just say even if I wasn't married and, you know, I've. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I got married before the age of social media for real like that or my wife and I've been together. So if I'm just treating her any kind of way, what do what do I get out of that? You know, what is like I prove to my friends what exactly it's like just for the story. It just it's like it, <laughs> I, it honestly. No, it it honestly it honestly never made sense to me. But then at the same time, it's always it's always funny, though, because no matter how many men that I've talked to and you know, that maybe lived a certain lifestyle. I didn't necessarily judge them, but they always admired my relationship. So regardless of even if they liked that, it seems like many of them wanted to be able to have something like I had, but they didn't want to put the work in or it almost seemed impossible. So it was like, OK, I know I'm doing something right before many of them. It seems like an imp it seems like a reality that they will never be able to reach. So instead, they just decide to live their life however they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the self-control thing? Can it be, uh, do you think that women are different than us in terms of the ability to control one's, one's sex drive? So here's the biggest thing when it comes to sex drive. The problem is most kids just aren't taught anything about sex. The church as, as a whole was a big failure to most of our generation and those beforehand. 
by just saying you shouldn't have sex because it says it in the Bible and cutting cutting it off right there, not talking about all of the other things along the way besides going to hell. You know, <laughs> they made it seem like, oh, that should be enough. But you and I talked about earlier in earlier in the show as a child, your brain can only process so many things. So just for it to be this long, this long, lofty consequence at the end of life. It makes it hard for a child to, you know, gather that it more so comes into for many children. It's just about opportunity. You know, every you're you just can't you can't change that these hormones are going on in your body and you're curious as to what it is. It's hard to, um, you know, most people spend this alone. It's almost like, you know, having sex and shame. They're exploring themselves and then doing it. The peer pressure to me is second. The first thing is most people just don't have someone to talk to about what they're going through and what they're feeling. And then once if the first thing they uh, find out about it is that they can have an orgasm, you know, that pretty much beats out almost everything else. It's kind of hard to compete with an orgasm. Yeah. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, if, if you know, but yeah. if for if you haven't told some, if you haven't laid the foundation of all of these other things, not just let's not forget the STDs, the children, the mental, the mental and psychological issues that you will have to deal with in creating these relationships later on in adult life. None of that stuff is discussed. So in essence, we fail the children just by thinking that they should do as we say. And so, you know, and then let's not forget, you know, for, for the most part, many of us were um, experienced porn as, at a young age. So that also shapes the mind. It's like I see this. And so it's something that I want to experience. It's never it's never really dealing with internally what the issues may be within the man, you know, or within the or within the person, because these are uh, women as well. You know, in when you're in school, when you're younger, the guys get excited to hear that there's a young woman who is having sex with a lot of with a lot of men. Right. And it's 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 weird, though, because it almost will seem like more often than not that there will be a woman who has more experience than most of the men and all of the men want to go after that. But then when they uh, when they talk about it and everything, they refer to her as a hoe and she's fast and all of this stuff. But they were chasing after this hoe, you know, so but because of how society treats them, you know, it's like, all right, it's only the woman's wrong. It's their men are so caught up in hoping that their sons are straight that it's, you know, they don't care about the other ramifications of it. It was like, oh, they found out that their son had sex with a woman. And so that's the most important thing, you know, and but it's a failure. It's almost like a, it's almost like a crowning achievement yeah. for them, like to say, OK, they know that they're doing that. But there's so much more that uh, we fail these children in. And so for me, like, I could tell you, like, it, it seems so funny, but like my birds and the bees talk, uh, we were watching Booty Call. My father, now Booty Call came out, I probably was 10 <laughs> out of 10. And I'm telling you, he, we was watching it because it was funny. And in the, in the moment, um, in one of the scenes, they go to, they're going to buy some condoms and they bought lambskin condoms, right? Yeah. And I remember my father saying, you never buy lambskin, you always supposed to use latex. And that was my birds and the bees talk. Yeah. <laughs> it was never, that was it. Yeah, that was it. And you I know, never got, I never got anything else. I'm glad you spoke to the this the whole thing again because 
um, this is a whole nother conversation, uh, and I do want to transition to something else, but I, I'll close this part of the conversation with this. I think as men, we do need to unpack because it could have came from dad, could have came from peers, uncles, music videos, hip hop, whatever. But there's this hypocrisy or duplicity that we have as it relates to women that I don't think we realize is inconsistent. And one of the ways that I saw this embodied was a guy, uh, Gilly, Gilly the Kid. He was, um, mm-hmm. or King now. And he he had did a video on Instagram. And I was like, if this ain't the most ignorant, like, <laughs> I'm like, this, it don't make sense. He was ranting mm-hmm. about, yeah, you know, you women who be showing ass and titties online, you know, y'all, um, you know, y'all look good. And yeah, I may smash you, but I'll never wipe you. So it was like, mm-hmm. it was like a, a backhanded compliment and a put down at the same time. And it's just interesting how we never, uh, we, we can put down a woman for quote unquote overexposing herself and we'll still sleep with her. But at the same time, it's like me sleeping with her has no reflection on me. So I'm putting you down as the lowest of the low, but that has no bearing on me. Mm-hmm. And it's the ability to sleep with uh, someone, even to the point of having unprotected sex with someone and, and trash mm-hmm. him. If you call her trashy, does that not make you trashy too if you sleep with her? But apparently for many of us, we yeah. di- we disconnect the two. So it's like I can put you down and sleep with you at the same time. And it's, it's, it's very odd to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you said this because I wanted to get this out before we transition. Um, Meg The Stallion did a, a, live, a concert on live last week. And it was it it had per, it was on title, and the only thing I was thinking because I was like okay you know I, I was like okay they got something going on I'm watching it right, and I said you know what's so funny because you know since especially since Cardi came out you know none of the, the guys really didn't talk about Nicki Minaj like this but mm-hmm. once like Cardi B came out and it opened the door for a lot more female rappers to be talking about this as I was watching that concert I said wow so. All of these male rappers are mad that these women are making money off of the things that they usually talk about and only usually allowing them to be in the video. Now they get to make their own money and talk about it. So I'm like, what's the difference? Y'all, y'all are upset because they're saying the things that you call them and say about them. And you're mad about it because they're capitalizing off of it. It doesn't make either one of them right. But it's like showing how crazy, how crazy it is that they're like, oh, yeah. Like to say something as if I wouldn't wipe you, but that s- saying something like that shows that most men don't see women as their equal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I just think, once again, going back to protect black women or the black family, we have to really think through these things. And it'd be good to have friends in your circle that will challenge some of these ideas rather than being being yes men on it. Because um, if you're in an echo chamber, you can hold inconsistent or hypocritical ideas well into your 40s and really have no basis for it and the minute you're confronted with someone who can say hey that's inconsistent you're not prepared for it and you know nobody wants to be wrong so then pride kicks in so i think we need to challenge some of these ideas um that have been instilled from community or or hip-hop or just assumptions that we think are normal in closing one oh, absolutely thing, one more thing just that you um may have thought of or that stood out to you from the book just uh you can take this one okay so um i think i had alluded to it and i just wanted to say uh one thing as we were closing out that last topic 
that one of the issues among young men and women is that once puberty starts, they start to separate between the sexes. You know, boys should be here, girls should be there. because And so it turns them into only being them as uh, someone that can you can't be platonic friends with. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still I there's still many people who don't understand how I'm able to have uh, a particular amount of female friends. Like even Steve Harvey, who wrote books on trying to teach all these women stuff, will say, oh, man, I don't have any, you know, no, I don't have any female friends to say it because it sounds cliche. Oh, I wouldn't do that to my wife. But no, the problem is people say that because they only assign, you know, uh, they only see women as a sexual conquest, not as an actual person. Why couldn't you be a why couldn't you be friends with a person just because they're of the opposite sex? And that only comes from you see them as that's the only other thing that they can be. You know, you don't see the value in them. But my main thing, and I want to transition into what you're saying, my last thing from the book was the uh, the levels of conversation that really hit me hard. You know, as I analyzed my male relationships, I was like, like, I had to look at one really good one that I've had for a long time. I said, man, we have really good friends. But I was like, for the most part, we haven't got below level four of level four is facts, right? I want to say level uh, four is facts because you had cliches. Okay, but no. So, but when I look, but to say, regardless of the levels, I would say that we were mostly on cliches and facts, even though we, because I was like, wow, we we actually talk on the phone a lot. You know, we've been good friends for a long time. We learn things, but I noticed we never really delved into the feeling of things. It was always about just the facts. In the yeah. cliches, the so, jokes and stuff. And I'm like, right there. and now every right time. There, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll add this in just so everybody knows what you're talking about. So there's a section in the book um, that discusses the levels of communication. And basically what I'm arguing is that in many cases, men don't go that deep in terms of how we communicate. So at the top of the communication pyramid is five, which is cliches, which is non-sharing. Under five is four, which is facts, just sharing what you know. Uh, three is opinions, sharing what you think. Uh, two is emotive, sharing how you feel. And down at the bottom of the communication pyramid is level one, transparency, sharing who you are. And what I'm arguing that is, in many cases as men, even if we've been friends for 10, 15 years, a lot of us don't go past level five or four in our communication with each other, which is just cliches and sharing facts. Okay, so... Yeah, when I looked at that, and now that I look at it because we said opinion, so like some level three stuff is in there, but mostly level five and four. And I had to say with, um, I have many relationships where that go down to level one. Mm-hmm. But when I look, looked at it, I said, wow, the vast majority is with female friends, but more so because they're just open to it. I can say it isn't that I haven't tried with other male friends, but it's just it's just not there. And you can't, for, you know, you can't force people to talk. Mm-hmm. So it's just hard. But I said, you know, I'm not going to let that stop me from trying to become a better person. You know, so I'm like, if if that's what it requires, if that level of friendship is only uh, where mostly where the majority of my female friends are willing to go. And that's how I learn. Then, OK, but I'm not going to just sit around and be silent, which is also why a lot of men don't want to go to therapy because they it will require them to go into the deeper levels of communication. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Very, very good points. And I think once again, going back to the protect black women thing, if we had relationships where we went 
deeper, I think, on a personal level, I think that will create a safer space and a better uh, environment for or for women as well if we, um, you know, had spaces to learn ourselves um, more. So I think that's ultimately necessary, and I'm glad that that stood out to you. I hope that uh, others are available um, or, or, or open uh, to, to having those types of conversations, but also uh, getting the book, uh, Whole Brother, Debunking the Myths That Break the Black Family. It's available on Amazon and wholebrothermission.com. Aleem, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. I appreciate your contribution. Thank you for reading and sharing the book with others. I truly appreciate it because, once again, you know, you, you, you worry sometimes that you put all your, your blood, sweat, and tears into producing something, and what if people don't read it? But I've been blessed that uh, people are reading it uh, around the country and uh, strangers, but also friends like yourself, and I truly appreciate, appreciate that. So thank you for uh, joining me today. Uh, this is Malik Blade, and this has been the Whole Brother Mission. Thank you.